this morning, um, we are starting a brand new series um, around the values sort of defined in the free Methodist world. And so, if you did not know, Cooks Hill is a free Methodist church. And there is a link inside your program to read more about what that means. But also, if you are here over the next few weeks, you will get to hear uh, some of what that means. And this morning, a good friend of mine, Allison, who also works at the conference office for the Free Methodist in this area, is here to start this series off by talking about love-driven justice. So would you welcome her this morning? I did make her promise she would not share too many embarrassing stories. We do not know whether or not she will listen, though. So um, thank you for coming this morning and uh, sharing with us about this important topic. Hey, you're welcome. And, you know, she promised me walk-up music and dancing and then, like, got really just boring there to say, here's Allison. She's a friend. She works for the conference. I hope it goes well. And notice how she's just walking away. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, so like Emily said, my name is Allison, and I am currently doing leadership development with our conference office. But, you know, over the years, I uh, have worn many hats, and I've worked many jobs, and I've done things from working in restaurants, pastoring churches, uh, doing leadership development in Latin America. I even did the thing that a lot of people do, and I had many side hustles to pay the bills, so I drove Lyft and would do interior painting and would, like, coach people and preach on Sundays, and then I would get in my Lyft and, like, drive people and do all the things uh, at the same time. So uh, in all these different environments, one of the things that always has stood out to me and that I have enjoyed is that when you are outside of the church environment, outside of the church walls, uh, like when you go to the gym or you're going to a neighborhood market or some kind of secular professional group, I'll be in conversation with people and inevitably it would arrive at the moment where people would ask me more about myself and they would discover that I do stuff in ministry and that I go to church and there would be this question that I would often get asked, which would be like, why? Like, you, you choose to do that. And you know, you'll get like the follow-up questions with like, oh, like what religion is it? Or uh, what kind of church is it? And if you use the word free Methodist, it's like, what is that anyways? And, and what's the difference? And you can tell when you're talking to people, and I could always tell that often for them, there would be a question behind the question. That clearly they were coming with some kind of story or some kind of experience. And, and often these questions and conversations would happen with people who would have no church background or would, for very specific reasons, uh, have stopped attending church. And so sometimes they would just say, yeah, you know, I had a, a kind of negative experience or a hurtful experience, and, and I, don't, I don't do that anymore. And so with reason, 
to say, hey, you know, I'm someone who does ministry. I choose to do church. I, of course people are going to be skeptical. I think that that's normal. And of course behind it is this, so what makes it worth it to be a part of something like a church? Uh, why bother? Like, is it even good? Does it actually make a difference? Or how does it make my life or our world any better? Well, as Pastor Emily just shared, uh, and maybe you've already seen it on the Cooks Hill website, but we are a part of this network called Free Methodist. And, and we hit a point in the last couple of years where we said, well, how do we really distill down who we are what matters, what makes it different. And so we arrived at this thing called the Free Methodist Way and these five values. And today I'm going to be sharing with you about love-driven justice. Uh, and there may be a part of you that is just like, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and tune her out right now. Uh, because maybe you've heard enough messages on values. Maybe you're like, yeah, as you're remodeling and repainting the church, that's nice. Just paint it on a wall you know, put it up on the website, you know, uh, create logos, blah, blah, blah. We've all been here before for this moment. Uh, and I totally get that. But I do want to ask you just for a few moments to stick with me a bit. Because here's this value of love-driven justice. And every time I have conversations with people, especially people who are outside of church who are skeptical or who have been hurt and they ask the question so who are you and what are you about uh, this is the value that they are most interested in there's something about love-driven justice that connects deeply with people and connects deeply with something that they also care about it connects with something that they also want for the world. But there's also another thing that comes with saying love-driven justice. And I recognize, and maybe you recognize, justice is kind of a buzzword right now that can stir up all kinds of reactions, good and bad. And so maybe even for you, you might be a little bit skeptical. Like, what direction is this message going to go? What is she going to even talk about here. So I want to start by telling you what it is that we mean when we say justice. If you dive into the Bible and into scripture, you find that justice and the related words occur more than 500 times all throughout scripture. And embedded in this whole word justice are all these ideas and metaphors and images and synonyms. So I created a word cloud. Uh, and simply put, justice is making all that is wrong in the world right. It's about fulfilling a biblical vision of shalom and peace and goodness in the world. Justice is about people experiencing joy and flourishing and fulfillment and delight when you keep looking around, it stirs up this imagery and this idea that justice is about generosity, equity, fairness, faithfulness, righteousness, kindness, love. It's about both being and doing good. It's about who you are and what you do. And justice is all about relationships. It's all about 
right relationships and good for the community. And it's something that we share. Justice is something that levels the playing field, that makes a crooked, crooked straight, and it's about bringing clarity and safety and belonging. When you hear those words, when you hear those ideas, who wouldn't want in on that? That picture is something that draws us all in. And people say when they hear me talking about that we're about this idea of love-driven justice, they'll often say, now that's something I can get behind. Uh, that's something that actually sounds like it's worth being a part of. The Bible talks about how in Proverbs, acting justly is a joy to the righteous. That people who uphold justice, it says in the Psalms, who do what is right are truly happy. Notice that that's why people long for justice. If you want joy and happiness and fullness in life, justice is what brings that about. The scriptures will talk about over and over again that it's the Lord who loves justice, like in Psalm 37. That this is what God is doing in the world. God is coming to establish justice on the earth. And he's establishing justice in the world rightly, and he's establishing justice among people fairly. This is what God is doing in the world, why God sent Jesus into the world, and what we're called as God's people to do in the world. There's this popular well-known verse in Micah that maybe you're familiar with, and it says, he has told you, O human one, what is good and what does the Lord require from you? To do justice, to embrace faithful love, and to walk humbly with your God. So notice there in these different verses how often love is connected to justice. You can't have one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. So I want to invite you to take just a moment and think about a person that you love and care a lot about. Actually, like, picture that person in your mind. Just one person that you love and care a lot about. I can imagine that if you love that person, you want the best for them. You want them to flourish. Well, what happens, what rises in you when someone treats that person poorly? What rises in you when they don't get what they deserve, when somehow wrong is done to them? Or think about just image of kids in our world. What happens inside of you when you hear about kids being bullied? What rises up for you when it's your kid who is being bullied or your kid who is doing the bullying? You know that feeling when something or someone is out of line, and it makes you say, that's not right. Things ought to be different. Things need to change. That feeling that you're having, that is the feeling of longing for love-driven justice. Or as some people define it, it's the way things ought to be. To be. The world ought to be good and fair 
and right. But as anyone who has existed in this world for a few moments knows, and it looks like you're all alive, uh, somewhat maybe in this room, so you all probably know that how things ought to be is not how things are oftentimes. Often what, pers- what drives us to pursue justice is not just we want justice, but it comes when we experience or see some kind of injustice. When something is wrong or painful or something unfair happens, and when things get personal, when something happens to you or someone you care about, well, that just kicks that drive into high gear. It was about 16 years ago, and a friend of mine, uh, some friends, they had their first child. And it was an amazing moment that quickly turned into one of those worst nightmares that can happen for parents. And they discovered that their child had been born into the world with something called hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And it's this congenital heart defect that has a very low survival rate. And so it means instantly as soon as they find out that the the baby is in NICU and it means a series of surgeries and eventually heart transplant and it is considered a terminal disease for kids. And over these last 16 years, and their child is actually one of the rare cases and he's still living, but boy, over the last 16 years since he's been born, they don't miss the opportunity to raise awareness, to raise funds, to help educate and support others who have children with congenital heart defects and they champion nurses, and they champion caregivers. And what happened for them is what often happens to a lot of us. For them, things got personal, and love drives them to be a part of making a better world in a very specific area of the world. I have another friend, and they discovered that their son was slowly becoming blind, And that transformed the way that they see the environment. We would go over and be hanging out together, and all of a sudden, now that they knew and they could see what was happening with their child, it changed the way that they treated the environment. What what toys are on the floor and are in the way? What colors are there? How can the different environments that we're taking our child be accessible and safe and welcoming for our child and for other children? Uh, How will children facing this risk of blindness experience a joyful existence? How does any child with a disability have opportunity to participate in things that they love? Uh, Where do systems and structures create barriers for involvement? What can be done to make the world a better, more equitable place? Uh, You know what it's like to have something that's totally off your radar suddenly become front and center in your world because of something you see or something you experience firsthand or something someone you know is going through. So I want to ask you this morning, what is it for you? What is it that makes you care about something? 
What is it that will make you take up a cause or what makes you give time, money, energy, resources to something? Uh, what are the things that you'll Google trying to find more information, more solutions, how to fix, how to access, how to make better? Uh, what are the movies or stories that get you choked up or make you cry? What is it that pushes your buttons? What is it that makes you angry or gives you that surge of adrenaline? Often those are signs that are pointing to something deeper. Things ought to be different. Something ought to happen or something ought to change. Someone ought to do something about that. Well, there's this key moment in the story of Israel's history, and it, it happens in Leviticus 19. And God is there telling Moses to tell the people, so how, how should they live? They should live rightly. They should live holy. And so it goes into this practical kind of list. And the list includes things like respect your mother and father, uh, respect the elderly. It talks about worship. It talks about eating practices. It talks about their way of life and community. It even gets into, like, how should you live as neighbors in your neighborhood? What should your business practices be like? Uh, he says things like, hey, to, to be right and live right, you probably shouldn't steal or deceive people. Uh, don't oppress your neighbors. Pay people a fair wage. I mean, this all sounds like great advice, that we'd be like, yeah, those are good ideas. It says... You must not act unjustly. Don't show favoritism to the poor or deference to the great. You must judge your uh, fellow Israelites fairly. Do not go around slandering people. Don't just stand by when bad stuff is happening. Don't take revenge. Don't hold a grudge. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's this great list that I think we would all agree and just be like, yeah, those are really great ways to do life and be in the world. And it keeps going on and on in this list, practical examples. Uh, but here's the thing. When has a list of do's and don'ts ever resulted in things being as they should be? How does that work, just telling people, yeah, do this, don't do that? Uh, when is telling people that, what they should be doing, and that'll just be enough. Well, I want you to notice what God tells Moses to say to the people. Towards the end of the list, God says to Moses, say any immigrant who lives with you must be treated as if they are one of your own citizens. You must love them as yourself because you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So God knows that simply telling people to do good, to do justice, to be fair, is never going to be enough motivation. God doesn't just do that classic parent line, you know, because I said so. Uh, that might work for a minute, but it doesn't actually work for very long. God says, love and treat people as you yourself want to be loved and treated. Why? Because you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be treated unfairly. You know what it's like to be a stranger, 
to experience injustice. So God invites them, hey, remember your own story. Remember your own life. These Israelites, they were enslaved and lived in misery under an oppressive regime. And God heard their cries and said, I'll set you free with great power and momentous events of justice. What God is doing is God is stirring up their empathy. They know what it's like to be rescued and to be set free. They know what it's like to experience a world of wrong being made right. So God calls them to remember so that what drives them is love and empathy, not some kind of dispassionate legalism. Love people. Don't treat them as objects or projects or to-do lists. Love people and do justice. Why? Because you know what it is like to be mistreated or to be devalued and to long for safety. You connect with your own story, your desire for justice, your longing for how you want to be treated. And from that place, you love others as you love yourself. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And on the flip side, do not do to others what was done to you in Egypt. Don't be a person who perpetuates a cycle of abuse by becoming an abuser yourself. You create a new story. Create something different. You do what God does. Protect, defend, serve, be generous, treat people with dignity, pour out love and compassion, do justice. Our motivation to practice justice is this response to what God is demonstrating and has done for each and every one of us. It's God's love and compassion towards us. And then we pay it forward. We go and we do likewise. And you might be thinking, well, that all sounds nice, Allison. Uh, we're here this morning, but when you start thinking of all that is wrong in the world, uh, there's a lot <laughs> that is wrong in the world. And we can find it overwhelming at times. I mean, how do you battle poverty, steward the environment, address all the inequities, all that is wrong, broken, missing in the world? I mean, justice can become this thing that is so meta and so big that we can feel helpless at the immensity of it all. We can get stuck and actually not even do anything because where do you even begin? Uh, Maybe you've heard of someone named Brian Stevenson. He wrote a book that is well known called Just Mercy. Or you may recognize him because Michael B. Jordan played him in a movie, so he's much more uh, recognizable to a lot of us. Uh, but Stevenson founded something called the Equal Justice Initiative to end mass incarceration, to challenge racial and economic injustice, to protect basic human rights. And so often, Stevenson is called to talk to people about doing justice. And he is a person of faith, by the way. Uh, and what he says is he's narrowed it down to one phrase. He tells people, get proximate. Decide to get closer to people who are suffering, marginalized, disadvantaged, and poor. 
because only in proximity to those who are suffering can we change the world. If I tell you to solve the world's problems, end poverty, racism, and injustice, you may freeze, you may disengage, you may be stuck at the size of that problem. But if I ask you to look around and get proximate to someone hurting or someone in need, now you begin to hear a story. You begin to witness the suffering and their tangible next steps begin to emerge. Stevenson says, get close enough and they will also tell you what to do. So get close enough to families and mothers in Centralia that you realize a tangible expression of justice is that you can open a free diaper shop because you realize that diapers are expensive and many people don't have a lot of money and a clean diaper means a healthier and happier baby and diapers can make a difference. That's what it means to get proximate, to get close to people, to hear a story and realize, you know, there's actually something we can do here about this. For Moses, he got proximate to the Israelites in Egypt, and he began to see and hear things up close. And Moses was like, somebody ought to do something about this. And God looks at Moses and says to Moses, uh, Moses, you are somebody. So you get going. I'm sending you. Notice how often God responds to cries of injustice by sending people like you and me to establish the love-driven justice in the world, to be people of love, healing, and freedom, to be people who stand up to systems of oppression and do what is good and right and put justice into tangible, practical stuff that makes sense. And often we can feel a lot like Moses did and just feel inadequate, like God who am I to go? And God is like, I'll be with you. I'll go with you. Because love-driven justice, it's always relational. You're not meant to do it alone. God is with you, and it's something that God calls us to do together as a people. So Cooks Hill, what I want to ask you is, what momentous events of love-driven justice are rising up from your story together? What events of momentous love-driven justice is stirring up in your story in this community, in this time? What is it that God might be inviting you to do? Love-driven justice is always contextual. That is, there is always a story, and it's always specific. It's always about specific people in specific places at specific times, and there's stuff going on. And the Bible always names who and what need momentous events of justice. And so you'll see it naming widows and immigrants and orphans and oppressed and lowly poor destitute, those who are wrongly accused, those who are enslaved, those who have been stabbed in the back, those who are treated unfairly. So for you, who would you name? What is your context? 
who or what needs to be named in Centralia? And all these communities that you have on the maps on the wall outside there representing Lewis County and Thurston County and all the places that you come from, how would you get specific? What are the stories of the people around you? Uh, who's falling through the cracks? Who's being taken advantage of? Uh, where are the cries of injustice that are rising up around you? And how can you get proximate, get close enough so you start to know what to do? How can you get really specific? Name the who and what. And how can you tap into your own empathy, your own story, this remembering how God has loved you, and let that be what drives you. And you might find yourself saying, somebody ought to do something about that. And so what I would ask you to do is pray and ask God, is that somebody me? Is that somebody us? And God will be with you in it. 